You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house here in Northern Command of CR, April 13th, Thursday afternoon. And it is the birthday of Thomas Jefferson, one day before my birthday, by the way. And uh, sorry about earlier this week. I know many of you were asking why we went dark, and I I took a couple days off. Um, Certainly a lot to talk about on the domestic policy front. Um, Freedom Caucus is going to give in on Obamacare. We're going to get to that next week. I don't blame them, but they're they're in a pickle. We got some more info on that. This, this tax plan's a disaster. Some budget stuff. President Jared. My gosh, where do we begin? But for today's broadcast, I have a special guest with us we've had before to discuss the Syria situation and just, you know, broadly philosophically on foreign policy what we should be doing, what an America first foreign policy actually looks like and how it relates to this false choice we've been talking about in Syria. Oh, do you get involved or not? What do we do about it? What do we do? Um, You know, I mentioned it was Thomas Jefferson's birthday today and in his first inaugural address in uh, 1801, he said that that he, he was seeking an administration of peace, commerce and honest friendship with all nations entangling alliances with none. And, you know, a lot of people talk about that through the prism of isolationism and this kind of false choice. And nowadays, obviously, we're all tied together and, you know, you're going to have entanglements to a certain extent. But whoever envisioned what's been going on in the Middle East for the last 15 years, Afghanistan, Iraq, hundreds, uh, not hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars spent Four or five thousand lives lost on our side, twenty thousand injured. Um, I think just in our Iraq, and we have nothing to show for it. Nothing, but more chaos, more Islamic civil wars. Oh, and by the way, about one hundred sixty thousand refugees from Iraq taken from both sides. We got refugees from Afghanistan. Now we're taken from Syria. Um, now we got troops back in Iraq. We still have 15,000 or so in Afghanistan with no plan after 15 years. But everyone wants to do something in Syria. we we got to do something. You, my gosh, Daniel, those pictures of the babies. What are we going to do about it? When are we going to learn the lesson? When are we going to stop falling on our swords for Islam? When are we going to make, to paraphrase Patton here a little bit, the other bastard die for his country rather than our guys die for their ideology? And, and with that, I want to introduce Patrick Poole. Um, we've had him on before, the uh, senior national security correspondent for PJ Media. This is a guy who actually knows what's going on on the ground in, in a lot of these countries to help us piece together the, the puzzle so we don't look at this in a vacuum of do you want to save babies or not. We look at it holistically. Um, and with no further ado, hey, Patrick, thanks for join, uh, joining us on such short notice. Uh, glad to be with you. No, we really enjoyed it last time. I got a lot of good feedback, uh, you know, when, when we had you on the last time foreign policy really flared up. And now uh, this week with Congress out um, and the Obamacare battle, 
behind the headlines. This is really the big news. And I, gosh, I don't know where to begin. And, and it's always hard to do this, uh, you know, just 20, 25 minutes or so. But I want to start with Sean Spicer's comments um, and not to get into, oh, the morality of comparing Assad to Hitler and saying he's even worse than Hitler. Hitler didn't use chemical weapons when, of course, indeed, he did gas people. I, you know, my point is even to get into the morality and, oh, I'm so offended. You downgraded the Holocaust. I'm offended by the strategic comparisons that people make to the Holocaust in order to get us involved in these Islamic civil wars. Could you just speak a little bit to some of these comparisons to, you know, World War II and getting involved and the differences that we're seeing when you just see in a vacuum, a, a, you know, a chemical weapon attack in Syria through the broader Syrian civil war? Why, why that comparison is not apt? Well, you know, I, I almost think that uh, these, you know, um, comparisons with the Holocaust are, are, are a form of Holocaust denial. You know, it's kind of hijacking the Holocaust, uh, you know, which is just uh, an, an action that was you know, so incomprehensible and, and really incomparable to um, re- really anything in modern times, with possibly the exception of uh, the genocide of the Armenians 100 years ago. The, you know, I, Spicer was ineloquent, uh, you know, that would kind of be an understatement. But the point he was making is that at the time of World War II, uh, after the experience of the Great War, um, my great-grandfather lost his brother, uh, who who was gassed in the fields in France. You know, uh, chemical weapons were uh, used in World War I. And after that point, Europe decided, we're not going to do that. And, and the point he was making was, look, you know, even in World War II, Hitler didn't use chemical weapons. And, and here's Assad using chemical weapons. I mean, you know, Spicer was almost making the point for the media, you know, that, that this is outrageous behavior. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, uh, I think it was predictable and unwarranted outrage. Uh, then just looking for for any misstep or misstatement and to blow it out of proportion. And if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else he would have said that day. And, you know, it's just outrage to jure. And I think people are getting really tired of it. No, and I, that that's the thing. And that's why I didn't want to focus on so much the outrage because, yeah, I we understand you misspoke. And that's why you never want to even touch the Holocaust because you're always going to step in it there. But just strategically what what i what i think a lot of people are missing is you know with the holocaust you had there was what to disentangle you had a predominantly jewish minority being uh, ethnically cleansed as well as some other minorities and there were concentration camps that you could have bombed there were train tracks you could have bombed there was what to disentangle and prevent much of the genocide what you have in syria uh, yeah i mean in a vacuum, this is horrible. But what ISIS is doing is horrible. What the Al Al Nusra and all these Al Qaeda affiliates, um, Al Sham, they're doing is is terrible. Um, you got Iran involved in Hezbollah. The question is, what are we do? What what is your understanding of this administration's strategic mission here? Um, they seem to be pretty adamant. No, this is just a one time thing. But again, one time things 
have to be backed by something more. Otherwise, they're going to test you, which we see Assad is kind of goading them. Hey, you know, I'll I'll launch uh, airstrikes from that very airfield you bomb the day later. And then what do we do? What? How do you get involved in a septic tank full of piranha sharks, snakes, and scorpions and say, I'm going to go after just the piranhas and somehow protect civilians? You know, in other words, you, you heard my um, preface here to this podcast that we we've had Iraq, we've had Af- Afghanistan, and they're all Islamic civil wars. They're different from what we saw in World War II, where you're able to protect people that um, were victims of genocide without kind of getting involved in civil wars. How do we do that? How do we make a clean play in Syria, protect civilians without having another Iraq on our hands? Uh, Daniel, I don't think we can, and I, I think you would agree with me there. You know, I don't think there is a strategic plan for Syria uh, by the Trump administration, um, and that's part of the problem. You said, you know, in your prologue, you asked, you know, what what do we have to show for you know all this investment in time, money, and American lives uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, what we have is defeat. Uh, that's what we have to show for it is defeat. And here we're getting set up again in Syria, um, you know, by, by Senator McCain and Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio, you know, the, the warmonger caucus, uh, and, and they really don't have any plan, but, you know, bomb Assad. And, you know, the fact is Assad's a monster. But then is so so is everybody else over there. You know the, the the opportunity for regime change passed several years ago. In, in the best case scenario, um, you know people saying, well, you know, you can't defeat ISIS without removing Assad. Well, you know, I I don't necessarily think that that's true. Um, and, and we're seeing that true. I mean, but, but Syria at this point is basically a mop-up operation. Once Russia got involved in Syria in September 2015, it, it, it was all downhill from there in, in terms of the resistance. And right now, I mean, they've pushed the rebels out of Aleppo, um, you know, and basically you've got Idlib and Hama um, that are the strong areas in terms of the rebels. Where, you know, ISIS is you know, operating in kind of a, um, you know, more in the, the northeast part of the country. And, you know, they're, they're mopping up. I mean, we're, we're at the end of things. And to suddenly get involved now um, with really no clear objective would just be completely foolish. And my concern is, Daniel, is that, you know, I'm seeing that um, the media um, and the McCain Warmonger Caucus are, are boxing in um, President Trump so that he has no room to maneuver on this. So he has no option but to go to war. Um, and, and anyone who's read uh, Robert F. Kennedy's uh, book, 14 Days on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I, I, I think it's, you know, it's illustrative of, of the problem we have where, where we have rules of engagement set up that we're going, you know, if this red line is crossed, then, you know, X is going to happen. To be candid, I think that Barack Obama's decision in September 2013 not to get militarily involved in Syria will probably go down as one of his best foreign policy decisions 
in his administration. Um, and, and that was another situation where he was getting narrowed into a box by the media, um, you know, by McCain and, and some, and the international community and, and Obama didn't blink and, and he's taking a lot of heat for it. If we had got involved, there would have be exponentially more dead. No, for sure. And, and at the time, you know, I opposed it very strongly. Um, I was criticizing Republicans that were goading him in. Some Democrats were doing it as well. And and I still criticized him for stuff he did do. You know, as you well know, he did put boots on the ground. There were several thousand. He calls them advisors, abuses our special forces. Um, you know, I just saw a story out today with uh, um, just, you know, record high drug use among our Navy SEALs. And it's clearly, in my view, a result of of just them being stretched thin on, on these aimless missions. So I criticized him for even the degree he he did get involved. So I'm certainly not going to change because we have a Republican administration. But I get the impression, and this is what really scares me. You know, if someone wants to create a red line with chemical warfare, I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're involved in a five way Islamic civil war. Any any side that at any time uses chemical warfare, we're gonna shoot at you. You know, again, I don't fully understand that in this context, but at least that's something that's coherent to me. But what scares me is that, you know, I'm seeing stories that Ivanka basically as is a pattern with many issues on domestic policy as well, comes in there and says, Daddy, oh, I am so offended by these pictures and, and the media just using imagery, which, look, you know, is 7.4 billion people in the world. There's so many terrible conflicts, temp, terrible things going on. All you need are a couple of pictures of dead babies, and you could, you know, use that as a policy punchline. Um, you made a very good point speaking to this kind of moral, very vacuum approach that if we're going to, you know, make, make a humanitarian causes the, the predominant factor in, in getting involved in these places without looking at the broader holistic strategic implications. What about Boko Haram? What about Boko Haram in Nigeria and other places in Africa? Can you speak a little bit to about what's going on there now that the media is not talking about and how that's a bigger deal than even Syria? Uh, and uh, Daniel, on my uh, Twitter feed, when you know the war drums were banging um, uh, b- before this missile strike, uh, I made the point, I said, look, you know, in Uh, January 2015, I was one of the few people who reported on the massacre uh, in in the Baga region up in northeastern Nigeria, where there were 2,000 people murdered by Boko Haram over the space of a weekend. And a BBC reporter talked about the fact that there were areas where you could not walk without stepping on bodies. You know, 2,000 plus people, just uh, unimaginable. Uh, carnage. And, uh, you know, the United States just kind of, um, you know, <laughs> didn't do anything about that. You know, Boko Haram has been one of the, one of the most lethal uh, terrorist organizations in the world. And, and I think what's happening in Africa uh, I, is more concerning than anything that's happening in Syria. You know, Syria is basically the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, and, and, but in Africa, um, you've got You've got Boko Haram, you've got Al-Shabaab uh, in the Horn of Africa, you've got uh, AQIM, uh, you know, now you've got ISIS operating uh, in Egypt. And, and my concern is, Daniel, what we're seeing is basically the head of Africa, um, that, that these Islamic terrorist groups uh, operating in Nigeria, in uh, Niger, in Central African Republic, in East, the Southern Ethiopia, and all the way to Somalia, 
they're, they're in the process of cutting the head of Africa off. And the strategic implications in terms of American foreign policy and American national security, if we lose the continent of Africa, are just unimaginable. Um, and so, you know, these distractions, um, thanks to the media, um, Syria is, is on the downside. You know, the rebels, uh, quote-unquote rebels, uh, their only existence is because of the United States. If we had not provided the tow missiles, uh, they would have been wiped out two years ago. Um, yeah, it, and, and that's just that's and the fact of it. Yeah. You, you've reported on this before, that the tow missiles have gotten in the hands of these Al-Qaeda-type groups. Exactly, and um, uh, repeatedly. You know, I've, I've probably I've done dozens of articles about these so-called vetted uh, moderate groups uh, that uh, you know end up either conveniently losing their weapons or, um, or or just you know getting beat by ISIS or Al Qaeda or Allah Al Sham, or what we're seeing uh, in Idlib is that we have these vetted moderates who are openly uh, operating in cooperation with. Uh, Jabhat al Nusra or Jabhat al Fatah, what you know, they just rebranded. Hey, um, yeah. Now, you know, it's cosmetic, but uh, you know, we've got these vetted uh, moderates who are openly. I mean, I mean, they're not even concealing it anymore. That uh, that Al Qaeda, uh, Jabhat al Fatah, is is running the show in Idlib, and um, it, it's just so. Mind-boggling to me that that we're at this point, at this late in the game in the Syrian conflict, uh, we're we're contemplating getting involved with no strategic um, or or national security objective in view at all. You know, you're you're leading to something that's a very uncomfortable point, and it's not politically correct to say this, but. One of the big points I was trying to make to people when making this contrast from Boko Haram and, and just a broader Islamist takeover of, like you said, pretty much everything down to the equator in Africa um, and, and the threat of the entire continent falling to Islam is that there you're having you're losing you know, the, the, the Christian hold on Africa is is you know getting wiped out. The Christian population is getting wiped out. And last week, I gave an analogy to a septic tank. You know, where you have piranha snakes, scorpions, killer whales and sharks in there. And, you know, I was saying we're going to jump headfirst in and we're going to just kill the sharks <laughs> without any regard to, you know, and again, you, you could to, to use the analogy, you could say there's civilians, there's always civilians. It's terrible, but there's nothing you can do about that. And certainly no, nothing you're going to do is going to save those people other than get yourself killed rather than standing outside and containing it, a policy of containment, not an appeasement, you know, uh, Cold War era version of it, but applying it nowadays, which is actually very appropriate, that you don't allow territory that you can hold from being grabbed. Um, and this is not to say, oh, man, Daniel, you're saying there's Christians there in Nigeria, but the lives of Muslims don't matter. But no, it's it's a matter of saying that when you have Islamic civil wars, yeah, you could show me pictures of babies being killed and they're going to be just as heartrending. But what exactly are you – what ground are you holding? You told me – you know, you said a minute ago that that area is really controlled by Jabhat al-Nusra. So 
wouldn't they reap the windfall of what we're doing as opposed to if you're saving Christians? Again, not to say that Christian saving Christians is different than saving Muslims, but you're not going to help another side of a of, a, of an Islamic civil war that's against us. Uh, yeah. And, and Daniel, uh, what we're seeing in Yemen, um, which again is a proxy war between Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran, yeah. um, we're just seeing destruction on uh, on a massive scale. Uh, in and in the case of the Saudis, I mean they're they're using U.S. weapons platforms, um, and 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 they're also using American intelligence uh, to to just. You know, bomb the place uh, to, to to rubble, and uh, you know there there aren't any rallies. You know there aren't any. You know there are graphic pictures coming out of Yemen, but it's not sexy, um, and and it doesn't have John McCain's attention. You know uh, where where McCain can come out and bang on the Republican administration. You know this is all being driven by media narratives and media priorities, and the clearly the media priority is. Anything to do to attack the Trump administration. Um, they were not applying this pressure to Obama on Syria uh, after September 2013. Um, so, so why now? Well, it's a stick to beat Trump with. Um, and, and, you know. Though, meanwhile, we've got you know you've got conflict in Yemen. You, you've got uh, you know Africa in flames. I mean, we're seeing. Churches bombed in Egypt, you know, the largest Christian population in the Middle East. Um, you know, there are more Christians living in Egypt than anywhere, you know, than the rest of the entire Middle East combined. Um, yeah, you know, I think those are important things. In Egypt, you know, President Sisi was just uh, in Washington two weeks ago. You know, they're one of our closest allies. Uh, we had uh, King Abdullah from Jordan. Uh, you know, we need to be strengthening our allies in the region. Uh, and, and we need to be asking, look, you know, if people are outraged about Syria, where are our Arab partners? <laughs> you know, yeah, where's Saudi Arabia? Um, you know, why is it our job? Uh, you know, why isn't it the job of Turkey, Jordan, uh, in Saudi Arabia and UAE to deal with this? You know, why do we sell them weapons to begin with if they're not going to deal with their problems that they've created in their own region? Why is it the United States fault? And, and, uh, you know, and that question goes unanswered. Why do we keep falling on our sword for Islam? This is what I don't understand. And, and, and that's my point, that you're right. You protect your allies. You want to make sure Egypt is strong. Um, you want to make sure we don't make a stupid play in uh, you know, Libya undermining Haftar. You want to make sure Jordan doesn't fall. Um, that's the containment. There's ground to be held for someone, for something stable that makes sense. That's the enduring lesson for me, at least. Um, you know, I supported the Iraq invasion, you know, years ago. I was young at the time, but I thought it was a good idea. Um, but that, you know, this is the point. Everything seems to boil down to the Sunni-Shia split, and I know it's a little bit more complicated than that. You have a lot more, you know, more factions, uh, especially on the Sunni side. Um, but it, it winds up being the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And what my, my concern is that between this administration's confusion, you got the, you know, Democrats in the West Wing, you got the State Department still a cesspool. Um, you know, everyone's all over the place. Then you got McCain and Graham doing their thing. The media is doing their thing that we're just going to repeat the same stuff we talked about last year when Obama was president, that we're constantly refereeing Sunni Shia civil wars, um, 
then we don't even, it's not like we say, all right, we're going all in against the Sunnis. So this is an all out strategy against ISIS. I'm not saying I endorse it. So therefore we're going to put everything in there or conversely, we're going to go all out against Iranian hegemony. It's no, we, we actually empower Iran. We don't abrogate the Iran deal. Um, you know, the state department has appointed, uh, the, one of the bulwarks of the Iran deal, I'm not bulwarks against them. I mean, uh, one of the supporters of it, uh, in charge of the Iran portfolio in the state department. So then we're just going downstream saying, well, we're going to go after Iran's proxy while they're kind of fighting ISIS. Oh, and by the way, we have troops on the ground supposedly a month ago that Trump sent to, to take back Raqqa from ISIS. Oh, and by the way, ISIS is kind of on the, on the decline anyway, because Al Qaeda now has, or uh, Jabhat al-Nusra has 10,000 fighters. I, I I don't, I don't get it. I mean, we're, 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 we're during the Obama administration, you had CIA and DOD fighting each other, literally, proxy war, different rebels. So if we go after Assad, are we going to be fighting our troops going after ISIS? How does that work? How do we piece that together in Syria? And that's the, that's the problem, Daniel, is that none of our national leaders, there's been nobody in the Pentagon to explain this to us. You know, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. In Syria, we had the situation of the CIA-backed rebels uh, fighting the Pentagon-backed rebels, um, and, uh, which is just absolutely insane. And then you have American lives. You know, uh, you have American boots on the ground in Syria and in northern Iraq right now. And, um, you know, I, 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 it breaks my heart when I see these casualty reports of uh, Americans, you know, and as as you said earlier, I mean, primarily the sp- special operators, uh, you know, many of whom have done, you know, it, uh, an, an incredible amount of deployments uh, since 9-11 um, and are, are just stretched past the bone, really, and, uh, and, and really with no American objective other than, you know, being pawns in you know, the, the game between Saudi Arabia and Iran and Obama had us on both sides of that too. <laughs> you know, um, we were backing the Sunni rebels in, in, in Syria. Uh, and he was working with Iran. Who's the, you know, Assad is the uh, proxy client for. And, and look, I, I appreciate that Trump is being more honest than Obama, at least that he's not calling our guys advisors in Iraq. He's admitting that, you know, they're in combat. He said as much, I don't know how how many we had. I mean, I think we had about seven thousand when Obama left. Um, you know, troops on the ground. You got Marines. You got some special ops. But what are we doing there? I'm I'm not. I mean, you know, ISIS definitely seems to be on the decline, both in Syria and in Iraq. But who's who's gaining that ground? I mean, isn't it? It's mainly well, not the Kurds, isn't it? Mainly the Hezbollah Shia militias. Well, in in uh, Iraq. Um, that would be the case, um, yeah, but but the Kurds are are involved in that fight too, and certainly uh, the Kurds and the Assyrians uh, with the Syrian Democratic Forces, which uh, our our troops are embedded with in northeast Syria, um, you know the the Kurds are are making headway there, um, uh, but, but yeah, there there is no clean cut divide, you know, anymore between especially in the case of Syria and Iraq. I mean, you've, you've got multi-forces. You know, you've got Kurds who want an independent state. Uh, as you said, you've got um, 
you know, we're working and basically backing these Iranian Shia militias uh, who've been slaughtering Sunnis and, and, and wiping out Sunni villages along the way as they're um, supposedly fighting ISIS in northern Iraq. And, and it's all amorphous. You know, the, the, the border is entirely artificial. And, uh, and, and we don't have anyone uh, in the smart set class you know, the people who are banging the war drums, you know, Charles Lister and the Institute for the Study of War, um, and none of them have explained how this works out. You know, where are the Kagans, you know, to explain how this all, all works out? All you get from the Kagans is a Wall Street Journal op-ed about how we need war. Um, you know, but, but the outcome of what, they, what they're saying is, is predictable. And then it's uh, not in U.S. national security interests. So uh, why are we doing any of this? We need a strategic pause. Um, uh, and the Trump administration needs a strategic pause just so, uh, so we can even figure this out um, in terms of the executive branch, but also the legislative. That's what really concerns me. You know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work now in domestic policy and is writing about, you know, some of the. And, and this is one of the good things that's come out of the administration, the discretionary budget. Um, they want to get rid of this ridiculous federal control of, of after school programs. I mean, something that that's that local and ineffective as well. And what happens is you have rent seekers in government and everyone kind of understands that an economic, fiscal, domestic policy. But what, what you have is really the same thing on foreign policy where we do stupid things just because we've been doing stupid things and it, and it self-perpetuates. And my concern is if you don't have some sort of operational pause and audit of where do we have troops, who are we fighting for, who are we giving weapons to, what ground are we being is being held and for whom, and how is it in our interest, I, I'm, I'm scared that we're just going to keep repeating the same thing where we're the ones that take the casualties refereeing Sunnis and Shias. And, you know, the Saudis and Iranians in each of their respective theaters are laughing all the way to the bank. Russia's laughing all the way to the bank. Um, you know, we're, we're serving as a Shiite air force and ground force now in Iraq. But then now we want to go after Assad, um, which is, uh, you know, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Syria, but we're still fighting ISIS. I, I just, I don't get it. And even if someone could tell me, look, if you have some sort of world war one style conference, which we don't have any international leadership, but let's say you did and you have, you know, um, an Alawite section here and you corner this off uh, uh, somehow a non a non jihadist Sunni tract here and you'd have the Kurds there and you, you know, divide up Syria and Iraq into a bunch of different pieces or something. But all of this is going to take our investment. And is there no sense of a risk versus return matrix of a cost benefit analysis? I, I, I mean, this president ran on not on building up America, not building up other countries. And we have so many problems with health care now and, and the budget and entitlement um, and obviously immigration. And, and by the way, Patrick, that's another thing. Doesn't this seamlessly flow into refugee resettlement? I, I mean, if the administration is going to buy into this line that in a vacuum, when you have, you know, Islamic civil wars and people on both sides, so-called civilians and, and real civilians getting killed. Don't we have an obligation to then take them in? Does this scares me that it seamlessly flows into that argument? Well, and we saw that uh, when um, uh, when when Trump bombed this uh, Syrian airbase. You know, the the media narrative is 
you know, here, here's this, uh, you know, little Syrian girl, um, you know, that, that we're trying to save, you know, from Assad's chemical weapons, uh, but we wouldn't admit her as a, as a refugee under the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, uh, a fair point. Um, sure. Maybe, so would, uh, I, 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 I think the problem we we're dealing with is uh, there's been a, an international vacuum of leadership with uh, during the entire Obama administration. And, and, and it's it destabilized many of these regions, particularly the Middle East, uh, but, but also Africa. Um, and, and now we have the refugee, you know, uh, issue tearing Europe apart right now. Uh, you know, meanwhile, we've got Turkey, you know, our NATO ally that's, you know, becoming the new Nazi Germany, um, you know, and with with very specific ambitions and making threats against our European NATO allies. It, it, it's um, it's strategic incomprehension. And and the fact that uh, during the Obama administration, uh, America was a wall in terms of. Uh, foreign policy, and now we're—it's—it's uh, it's almost like we're getting sucked back into that role, um, and people want us in that role, but, but it's not clear. Uh, first off, we're dealing with a, an entirely different board setup uh, than what Obama had when he came into office. You know, it, everything's just a mess everywhere, and and we don't have any objective. You know, the Trump administration was kind of surprised. And then you have this internal, you know, war inside the National Security Council. Um, yeah, it's just uh, bizarre in and of itself. I mean, they, they can't even govern, you know, the White House, you know, the West Wing. <laughs> so, so how are we going to, you know, control these operations operating everywhere? I mean, we, we have uh, troops in in dozens of countries operating right now. Uh, what, what exactly is going on and what's the American interest? No one seems to be asking that question. And that's what bothers me. And even some of our friends and allies, even some conservatives, you know, and <laughs> it, it's tough um, because I, I think they're so focused on Obama and the Democrats and there was no leadership. So they viewed the airstrike as, oh, he, he set a red line and he actually fulfilled it. Um, and executed went went through with it, but again, you have to step back and have a holistic approach first. We, we always seem to have this reflexive reaction that we have to get our troops involved first, then ask questions later. Um, you know, it's not a matter of definitive action. We you know Obama was weak. We need toughness. Well, again, I mean, you you could jump into what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, what does that mean? And what's the objective for us to get you know to be strong? But but I, I'm shocked at how so few people could articulate this, even on our side. Um, and I think even some people that fundamentally agree with us, they're just very obscured by this. And and I've been telling this to people for a while. Obama's out of power. You know, now is your turn. And we, we need to understand what is our plan for Afghanistan? What is our plan for Iraq? And and just leaving our troops in or even dumping more in without a plan um the only thing worse than not having a plan is having troops in harm's way and not having a plan. So, you know, the default shall always be not to act. Um, we're running out of time, but I want to just touch on one other thing. Um, what are you seeing from the Muslim Brotherhood end? You know, I, I know you see a lot of them on, on Twitter are really excited about Trump going after Assad. 
I've seen a lot of them in general are a little bit giddy, almost like we, we dodged a bullet here. Um, in terms of the administration's policy towards the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, if you would have thought maybe back last, nah, last November, December, you'd be seeing what you're seeing now in April. Are you disappointed in, in, in what you're seeing this administration's policy towards the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, I mean, we, we certainly aren't uh, in, empowering the Brotherhood as Obama did. You know, so in that respect, I mean, it's, it's a positive development. Uh, but what we're seeing within the administration is we've got the first wave of people on Omaha Beach, and they're just getting slaughtered. Um, in, in terms of the swamp, the establishment swamp is, is eating that first wave of people who've gone into the White House and into the administration uh, to begin to change things. You know, now we need, you know, the second, third, fourth, and fifth waves uh, to go in. You know, I'm going to be in the Middle East here this time next week, uh, you know, working on this Muslim Brotherhood issue uh, where, where we see the Muslim Brotherhood I mean, actively engaged in terrorism in Egypt. I mean, uh, Hassan and Liwa Afawa are Muslim Brotherhood organizations committing acts of terrorism. Um, and and so, so much of this discussion that's going on, like, uh, you know, Michelle Dunn in the Washington Post today saying that uh, designating the Brotherhood may be illegal. I mean, it's just, it's just utterly insane. Um, you know, the, uh, Congress, uh, Congress and the courts have already resolved this issue. And the courts resolved this issue in uh, Holy Land versus Ashcroft. You know, the government has the right to designate. Um, you know, the executive has the right to designate uh, these groups and organizations as terrorist um, designated terrorist organizations. So they're backing off. I mean, it looks like they're really backing off. And like you said, uh, yeah, they're, they're backing off, and and they're getting pressure from the Saudis. You know, King Salman is a different. Um, you know, he's much more friendly to the Islamists uh, than King Abdullah was in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, we've got Qatar. You know, where we have our you know. Uh, uh, fifth fleet, uh, you know, uh, base there. We've got CENTCOM uh, forward in Qatar and Qatar. I mean, Qatar is not just funding the Brotherhood, but I mean, they were funding ISIS. Uh, and you've got the Brotherhood operating in Turkey, our, our NATO ally. No, and, um, and Patrick, openly. Don't you have, you know, forget about ISIS. I mean, that's one thing, but I mean, isn't, I don't even know what to call them anymore, but the decentralized Al Qaeda groups there, aren't they now? threatening to even overtake ISIS in strength, and they're funded by the Saudis. Well, uh, you know, you've got these various al-Qaeda branches, um, which have been funded by uh, the Saudis and Kuwait and Qatar. Um, you know, to, to their credit, uh, United Arab Emirates um, have done, a, on the Muslim Brotherhood issue, have been very outspoken. They designated hundreds of Muslim Brotherhood groups in the Middle East and Europe and in the United States, including uh, CARE and the Muslim American Society. Uh, and so, you know, we've got these, uh, and they're allies. I mean, that's, that's the problem is that Saudi Arabia um, and Kuwait and Qatar are ostensibly U.S. allies, and yet they are funding these uh, al-Qaeda groups uh, around the world. Uh, and they're continuing to propagate, you know, the Wahhabi ideology that 
uh, that's the framework that all those organizations are built on top of. And they're, you know, they're empowering the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, which again is, you know, in places like Egypt, the, the distinction between the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS is uh, that, that distinction is quickly going away. Uh, you know, you've got them actively working together, you know, with, with Hamas in Gaza and ISIS, and, and, and that's been reported on. Um, and, and that's how you have ISIS uh, yeah. all over Sinai now. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, and, and ISIS was being supplied, and I, ISIS wouldn't be operating in Sinai without the help of Hamas and Gaza. Uh, that's just a fact, and again, that's been reported. I'm not, you know, revealing any secrets here. Um, so, so that line between the Muslim Brotherhood and I, and groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda are are just, you know, they're not even pretending anymore. I mean, they they were always associated. Uh, going back to the cartoon conferences back in the early 90s, um, where you even had the Iranian groups, uh, you know, uh, terror groups operating, you know, with some of the Sunni terror groups. So uh, they're, they're not even pretending anymore. At the very point, uh, you know, you've got uh, countries, uh, you know, the Belgians, the Swedes, the Germans, have all the intelligence have all put out reports. Uh, can, warning about the Muslim Brotherhood operations in their countries, and you've you've got the foreign policy establishment in Washington D.C. saying, you know, the, these are you know these people are the firewall against Al Qaeda and ISIS. Where where has that been? You know, where has the Muslim Brotherhood actually been a firewall for any of these organizations? Well, our, our listeners are very familiar with my, my analogy that the. Uh... The, the Muslim Brotherhood is to Al Qaeda and ISIS kind of what the Republicans are to the Democrats. You know, on paper they speak out against them, but they're really a a forward guard for them that just uh, allows them to advance. Uh, you know, seamlessly by you know a false flag operation. But uh, yeah, we're running out of time here. It's, it's been a been a great discussion, but to kind of sum it up. I mean, you know, like you said, Syria is really on the decline. ISIS is 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 going downhill. Um, Assad's permanently weakened. Um, it's just very much a civil war, but the broader problem we have from Iranian hegemony on the one end and the Sunni Islamist um, insurgency, which, as you noted, you could have ephemeral groups. ISIS came and it could go and it probably will go. You'll have something else. You always have some Al Qaeda branch, but it's fa- the, the the grassroots that that um, you know, radicalizes them. And then there are affiliates in North America that ensure that Muslims in America don't assimilate and radicalize them with the curriculum and, and uh, matriculates them into the ranks of, ironically, both Sunni and Shia um, radicals. They're kind of bipartisan in that sense, even though they're Sunni. That's the problem. And, and you know, it's it's not a matter of isolationism versus interventionism. It's making the right plays, making the right priorities. Um Sadly, we don't have those priorities. Just wanted to give you the last word to comment on that. Well, it's it's a very simple formula that the Trump administration needs to follow. We need to cut Iran loose. You know, we need to re- revoke, repeal, whatever the Iran deal. Uh, we need to support our allies, and and in the event that we actually do intervene, um, we need a clearly stated national security and foreign policy objective uh, in view before we take that action. It's not rocket science. 
No, absolutely. And and I'd like to close with a, a, a thought. It's interesting you brought up the history of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, you know, we started out talking about Sean Spicer and the Holocaust comments. You know, you want to talk about that. The Muslim Brotherhood, what was it, in the, in the mid to late 40s, they were the ones within months, years after the Holocaust, slaughtered Jewish villages um, near the Gaza, near Sinai, um, in what's modern-day Israel in the south, in the Negev there. Um, really gruesome stuff. Um, and there were actually, my understanding is there were some villages that, that were named thereafter, after the Warsaw Ghetto. That's how close it was. Um, and there were even some su- survivors from Europe there. So you want to talk about a connection to the Holocaust? Well, the Muslim bros, <laughs> that, that, that's the appropriate connection that no one's talking about. And, and Hassan al-Banna, the, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, was very clear in, in stating his objectives of, of completing the Holocaust. Um, and, and you had Muslim Brotherhood militia units uh, fighting against Israel in 1948. Exactly, and that's why strategically it does matter whether they are attacking, you know, Jews, Christians, Kurds versus you know other just Sunni Muslims. It, it's terrible. I mean, but this is why we shouldn't allow, um, you know, Islamism to to proliferate because it's it's terrible. It's not our fault. We didn't do it, and there's not much we can do to solve these civil wars. But we're at a time. Thanks so much for giving us double time on such short notice. We'd love to have you back again. Uh, thanks for having me, Daniel. All righty, take care, Patrick. Well, that that was Patrick Poole, uh, senior correspondent for, for National Security Affairs for PJ Media. Um, my gosh, we are way over time here, but I'd be remiss if I did not give you guys my pitch for our latest uh, sponsors. Make sure you are tuned into CRTV. I'm going to be appearing more often on Steve Dace and Michelle Malkin. So you want to get your prescription if you want to see my lovely radio face on CRTV. Um, and in addition, please join us in our in, in supporting our new sponsor, Birch Gold. Um, like I told you guys, I've already gotten my free information kit on physical precious metals from our friends at the Birch Gold Group. They they offer plans to put in some of your money to IRAs. I know many of you are filing extensions now. I mean, you might owe the federal government some money, might owe the IRS a couple thousand dollars. I always put money in an IRA and keep it away from them. <laughs> That's how you uh, uh, you know stop yourself from writing checks to the federal government and. You know, even if you're not one of these that wants to go all out, I'm certainly not one in general, but I do want to diversify my portfolio. I think you should as well. Nothing is a better hedge against financial collapse than precious metals, um, especially in terms of long-term investments. So right now, just get your free no-obligation kit at birchgold.com forward slash CR. That is B-I-R-C-H gold.com forward slash CR. Thanks for listening. As always, we'll be back to domestic policy next week. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conscience.